Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 153. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkin, our Father, our King. Lord, we ask that you will be with us once more tonight in spirit. We pray that um, we will hear the words and that we will understand and that we will put them to practice, that we will allow the Holy Spirit to um, allow your words to sink deep within our hearts so that we can... um, allow them to find root and um, cause us to uh, take action. We don't want to be a people of speech only. We want to be a people of where our faith actually takes root in us and causes us to do something um, for your glory. And so help us to lead lead lives that are exemplary and help us to continue to um, press in uh, to be men and women of holiness um, turning from sin and turning to our Master Yeshua. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you once again, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunova, which is the harvest in Thornton, Colorado. As you can see on my screen right now, you can find us online at graftedin.com. If you can't join us in person in Thornton, Colorado, we do still um, have our live internet, uh, well, not live internet studies, but our um, streaming services that we upload to our YouTube channel. So head on out to youtube.com and look for our uh, YouTube channel or just go to our gra- our Grafton website and click on one of the links there. And you can see on my screen right now, um, I believe Mark is still continuing through that ser- sermon about um, today's beast system and how to overcome it. The title there, uh, you can see. So join us for our live teachings online if you can't uh, join us in person. I also have my own um, Torah teaching website at TateSayTorah.com. You can find me on the web at www.TateSayTorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E. T-O-R-A-H.com. Love to have you um, join or, well, visit my website and take a look around at all the resources that I make available for for you there, Um, like you can see on my screen. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd like to 
uh, remind you about. And you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tetsay Torah Ministries. Head on over to my YouTube channel and take a look at all the videos that I have fun putting together week after week. I'm quite a busy beaver and I'm uploading videos daily there uh, as you can see by looking at the, the um, date stamps on the um, thumbnails. If you do hit my um, YouTube channel, make sure you do these few things for me. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and join the family. Hit the thumbs up. I'm sorry, hit the bell notification to make sure you know when I'm uh, uh, uploading new videos. And then hit the thumbs up to let me know that you like the content and support my channel that way. Also, be sure to leave comments to let me know what you like and what you don't like. And tell me what you'd like to see on my channel and I'll see what I can do about getting that content up there. And then um, lastly, don't forget to share the um, uh, content uh, with your other friends and families and your members in your social media circles. I think I hit all five of them there. If I didn't, well, oh well. All right, these are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. Let me give you some of the brief details uh, so you can understand what's going on. Yeah, I think I do want that a little bit bigger. Um, this is episode number 153 for this week of August 28th, 2021 on the USA uh, date side of things. We meet every Saturday afternoon from 4 p.m. to approximately 5 p.m. So I hope you can make a set your time clock against that time zone, 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. Central Standard Time. And um, you'll be sure to be able to meet with us. The hour-long study is broken up into two 30-minute segments. The first segment is given over to Romans 14 Unplugged. Feast and Fast and Food, oh my, we're in part 69 tonight. And the second segment uh, is given over to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper three, finally, after several months of going through paper two, probably even a year. And we're finally ready to start talking about who or what is the Holy Spirit, which represents part 86 tonight. And then lastly, there will be a featured YouTube video that we'll watch near the end of the study. It's from my short question, short answer live series. And the question that we'll be listening to or watching really, is what does this Bible mean when it says the spirit brooded? And I picked this particular um, video. Uh, I think we may have watched it in the past, uh, but I picked it again because we're going to be start talking about the Holy Spirit, and we're going to be reading through um, Genesis 1-1 uh, for our liturgy, and that also talks about that language about the, the spirit brooding there. So, um, these live internet studies, I'm just giving you some brief important details, are brought to you via Skype. The easiest way to join us week after week is to go to my website at grafted in, I'm sorry, at uh, tatesaytorah.com. At the very top, there's an orange banner. Click that. That'll bring you to this page. Scroll down about halfway through the page and you'll see the blue Skype banner. And if we're conducting a live study like I'm doing right now, and you click on the Skype link, it will actually launch Skype in your browser if you're using a desktop or laptop computer. That's the easiest way to join us. And as always, um, you don't really need a Skype account or um, a, 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 the Skype app installed on your computer if you're using a desktop or laptop. Your browser will do all the work, and that will be the easiest way. Also, if you're on my website at tatesaytorah.com, take a quick moment to scroll to the very bottom of the website, that black section where you can see some Hebrew writing, and prayerfully consider donating to my um, ministry and to me as a Torah teacher. Uh, I'm in a place where I could sure use the assistance, and if the Lord's laying it on your heart to be a blessing to me financially, well, then this is the way to donate securely. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing 
to others. All right, let's turn to Romans uh, 14, Unplugged Feast and Fast and Food, Oh My. And let's jump right into the study. Let me see. I want to uh, pick up where we left off last week. We've been talking about this topic of um, what does Paul mean when he says, um, uh, I'm persuaded that all things are, uh, nothing is unclean in of itself. And what we determine after looking at some technical terms and uh, some other information that he's likely not trying to convey to his readership that God has done away with the dietary list. Instead, using some clever Greek terms that to the original readers would have made much sense, but to us in today's standards, sometimes a little confusing just because of our English translations that swap out different English words for uh, certain Greek words, what we're finding is that there are two terms that help drive uh, the understanding of um, uh, what Paul was trying to convey in his uh, verse, uh, I'm persuaded that nothing is unclean in of itself. Basically, as I've come to understand it, he's trying to con- express the idea that God sets the definitions of what animals are clean and unclean. And given any different scenario that you might find yourself in in the first century, you may encounter um, permissible food that you can eat and have no problem with. Or, if you're a religious Jew, you might find that food being sold from a questionable resource, like a, um, a pagan market, or it might have been used in an idolatrous ceremony or something like that. And given that context, then the food itself might be determined to be unfit for consumption even though God said it's okay to eat it. It's on the Levitical, Leviticus 7 list of permissible foods, but because of its questionable sources, religious Jews are going to say, mm, this, fruit, this food is um, it's unsanctioned, it's unholy, it's, it's, um, it's not reliable. And the word they used in the Greek, the, the word koinos that we looked at over the last few weeks, is the word that they would have used to de- designate food that was common, handled by everyone, questionable. Um, We're going to say it's off limits, even though God says it's okay to eat under normal circumstances, it would be okay to eat. So that's the context of Paul's letter. He doesn't, we don't have to say that when Paul says, I know that nothing's unclean, even though the same English word is used in your English translation of Leviticus 11 to refer to food that's unclean like pork or shrimp. Um, Paul's not coming along saying that, hey, God changed his mind on food. That's not the best way. However, now let's jump into the um, uh, continuing context of what Paul's really trying to convey. Even though the technical terms helped us out, there's a greater message underneath that would have been really relevant for them and, and uh, uh, um, uh, what do we say, uh, more easily applicable for them because they lived in an environment where there was a temple to consider clean and unclean foods anyway. Today, we don't have a temple. So it's not it's not really practical to go around pointing at food and saying, that's unclean. Well, that's unclean. What do you mean unclean? Unclean by what standard? Ritual? There's no ritual um, standards for us to contend with anymore because there's no um, Levitical priests and, and animals being sacrificed. And we don't really have that um, application. So let's look at the last aspect of this clean and unclean food dialogue uh, through the lens of a Messianic Jewish author, by the name, a Jewish author by the name of Tim Haig. I've quoted him quite often. Here's what he says in my uh, commentary. Uh, as you can see on the top of the page, uh, this is where we're going to pick up the study. While perhaps not championing a Torah-based lifestyle for Gentile believers in Jesus, um, speaking of Dr. Craig Keener um, that we looked at last week, um, 
for a lifestyle for Gentile believers in Jesus as a Torah-keeping Messianic Jewish man myself, I must nevertheless admit that I believe that Dr. Keener does, in fact, tap into the greater Messianic message of Paul's letter to the Romans in putting table fellowship and food matters into their proper perspective in light of our eternal redemption in Christ and our biblical duty to practice deference and serve one another, right? This is going to be the main message um, I believe that Paul's talking about. Give me a second. Let me see if I want to make the little bigger. Yeah, I think maybe I can leave that uh, as a bigger uh, font there. Um, so the main message is, that Paul's trying to uh, get across to us, uh, even though we're talking about sensitive food issues, and sometimes it can be a little bit technical from our perspective, given the challenge of uh, language barriers from the original Greek over into um, translations like English and other languages, and given the fact that given the fact that we don't have a temple anymore to think about clean and unclean in that same respect, nevertheless, the primary issue that Paul's really trying to convey to us is about thinking of the other person more highly than you think of yourself, practicing deference and serving one another, as I say in my commentary, putting the other brother's sensibilities before your very own. That's really the heart of what Paul's trying to convey. And so you have a brother who has food sensitivities. We can now make a practical application for today's 21st century um, church societies and, and church communities. You have brothers who have um, sensitivity sensitivities when it comes to food. And um, you yourself consider yourself one of the strong. You don't have these food sensitivities. What should you do when you find yourself at a potluck or being invited over to dinner? Dinner or inviting someone else else over to dinner, somewhere where there's going to be food that's going to be served between you and this other brother who has um, a food sensitivity himself. What should you do if you learn of that other brother's weakness towards food? Well, according to Paul, you want to put your brother's position above that preference of your own. You want to make sure that he is his conscience is not wounded in the matter. You want to um, dialogue with him and make sure that he feels comfortable, if at all possible, in that social setting where food is being served, in that table fellowship. You want him to want to fellowship with you and the greater community. You, want to, you don't want to ostracize him and make him feel embarrassed just because he has a different perspective on food. Now, we're talking about someone of the same faith, and by today's standards, give me a second there's something in my throat that just won't get out of there by today's standards we would normally be um, talking about uh, fellow Christians at potlucks and and um, table fellowship settings but in Paul's day keep in mind that I believe that the greater faith community would not have only included fellow brother Christians Jews and Gentiles but would have extended to some extent to the um, the Jewish communities that were still considered part, part of Paul's faith family albeit from an extended perspective you have to remember that the first century Christians were still very much connected to their Jewish counterparts in the synagogue so that there was contact and access back and forth between the church groups at the smaller level and the synagogue on the larger level. We didn't have the, the split uh, between the church and the synagogue like we have today just yet. So for Paul, he would have envisioned uh, scenarios where unbelieving Jews who were um, interested in the Messiah of Israel, they weren't 
hardened against who Yeshua was as the Messianic prospect, they were open to that concept and open to dialogue, would have been in a place where there still would have been table fellowship taking place between unsaved Jews who were part of the community and saved Jews and saved Gentiles who were part of smaller communities. There still would have been um, opportunity for table fellowship to, t- to take place. And thus, the sensitivities of the weaker brother who was likely the unbelieving Jew, or it could have extended to the Messianic Jew who was still religiously enough concerned to keep the halacha of the rabbis and things like that, you know, steering clear of food that was sold in the marketplace. Either way, um, the strong who would likely have been the Messianic Gentiles would still have had to practice the same deference and serving of one another that Paul's talking about in this passage. I go on to say in my commentary. However, I also believe that Tim Haig's brief comments in, in the comparison to Dr. Craig Keener that we looked at recently, Haig's comments on Romans 14.14 14 equally serve to demonstrate Paul's primary thoughts on the matter without having to sacrifice the ritual aspect of the written laws of Moshe for believers in Yeshua. You understand what I mean by that? It's not necessary to interpret the passage where Paul says nothing is unclean of itself. It's not necessary to interpret that as a doing away of the dietary laws of Leviticus 11. That's what I mean by the ritual aspect of the written laws of Moshe. We can still gain an appreciation for what Paul's really trying to get at and still keep the law of Moses intact because if Paul is indeed talking about food that was permissible by God, but simply deemed by men as off-limits based on the questionable um, uh, origins of the food, well then, that would still allow for the law of Moses to be um, uh, set in place, right? God has his say when it comes to what's clean and unclean as far as certain animals, and at the same time, man can come along and say, uh, yes, God, you said it's permissible, but uh, my conscience won't allow me to eat food that was sold in the marketplace because of its um, uh, questionable origins. And God's going to be fine with that because we're still eating to the Lord, and we are, in fact, keeping the written Torah. Um, we don't have to say that the, uh, the law has been done away with. Here's what Hag has to say concerning these particular verses of um, Romans 14, 14, which, again, uh, I keep paraphrasing, Paul says, I've learned by by revelation of Yeshua that nothing's unclean in of itself, but if someone says it's unclean to that person, it's unclean. That's kind of the gist of what Paul's trying to to say. Here's what Tim Haig has to say pertaining this particular section. Uh, First, Paul is convinced that his teaching on the matter is correct because it agrees with Yeshua's teaching and manner of living. And That's important for us to contend with and consider by today's standards because if we think that Yeshua did away with the law, then it would be natural for Paul to follow in the footsteps of his master and teach his students as well that the law is no longer relevant, that Jesus did away with the law, that Jesus fulfilled it so we don't have to, and that um, uh, the, the old is out, the new is in, etc., etc. That's going to be the way we interpret Paul if indeed that's the way we interpret Yeshua. And that, indeed, is the traditional standard way of interpreting this passage. However, on the contrary, on the flip side, if we're of the impression that Paul, that Jesus didn't do away with the law, like most of us who are Messianic um, hold to, myself included, and Tim Haig, if we believe that Jesus is, did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it, and that word fulfill in Matthew 5.17 that I'm quoting has to do not with 
with uprooting the application, but rather bringing it to its fullness and then allowing us to be empowered to actually walk into that um, fullness as well, meaning we're, the, the law has actually given a stronger standing in Messianic communities, and we're now empowered by the Holy Spirit to actually walk into the Torah. Well, then Paul, as a student of Yeshua, is going to make sure that his own personal halakha and understanding and interpretation of the law of Moses is going to line up with that of the Lord Yeshua as well. So that's what I mean by, if Paul's going to say, I've been convinced by the Lord Yeshua that nothing is unclean, well, if Jesus didn't do away with the law, then Paul himself also can't do away with the law in his statement. So, second, uh, Tim Haig says, we know from verse 20 of Romans here that Paul refers to food when he says, quote, nothing is unclean of itself. So he's not talking about some of the other unclean issues that we would encounter if we were reading through the Torah of Moses, where we're talking about unclean um, items related to the tab tabernacle and temple and things like that. He's really just focusing on food. And remember, the Greek word that's used in the, uh, for this passage in Romans is koinos, as opposed to the Greek word akathertos. We looked at the technicalities last week, and I'll put a little slide in my post-production that shows uh, some of these technicalities, but koinos is a Greek word that's better rendered as a man's understanding of saying what is permissible and not permissible, um, sanctioned and unsanctioned, holy and unholy, common, or something like that, versus akathertos is a stronger God-given biblical definition to refer to things that are definitely off limits by God, whether it be food or whether it be unclean spirits or something like that. The, that word akathertos is better rendered unclean. But the word koinos in the Greek is better rendered as common or um, uh, handled by everyone, uh, uh, you know, unholy or uh, unsanctioned or um, secular or some other kind of softer, not as rigidly um, uh, defined uh, adjective. That's the better way to understand it. Um, Look at verse 20 uh, that I have quoted in my commentary. Paul says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Right? Putting everything into perspective. So when he says nothing's unclean in of itself, he's talking about food, and he indeed defines it in the very next clause. Paul says, All things indeed are clean. And the word clean there is the Greek word, something related to the word koinos. Um, they are for evil, the, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense, Romans 14.20. So um, within the context of what Paul's trying to convey to his readership, the word clean there can't mean, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I said koinos. Uh, it's actually um, uh, some some derivative of the word um, kath, katharos, which is uh, a rooted, it's similar to the word akathertos without the alpha privative, that the little a that falls in front of it, ah. Uh, Katharos, akathertos. So if we take the A away, the letter A, then we end up with just katharos or kathairo or something like that in the Greek. And um, it, it's the common word used to describe something that's ritually clean or um, biblically clean or spiritually clean. It's just a generic word for clean, cleansed or something like that. Um, we could even supply the adjective of kind of innocent uh, in this sense. All things indeed are innocent, uh, meaning there's no moral right or wrong when it comes to food. Uh, it's innocent until either God comes along and declares it unclean or man comes along and declares it common or something like that. In, in you know, without 
um, someone uh, giving it a greater definition or specificity than the food itself, the food that God says is permissible. It's in fact innocent. It's clean. It's it's available for consumption until someone comes along and says, no, that's been sold in the meat market. It's been food offered to idols. Uh, it's it's uh, profane. It's unholy or it's common or something like that. Don't, don't eat it. So that's what Paul's trying to convey. Tim Hague continues talking about these uh, bullet points uh, in relation to the section of verses that we're looking at, verses um, 14 through 20. Third, Tim says, the added, quote, in itself, in quote, you know, meat, nothing is unclean in itself, like he says. It means that the meat designated by God is clean, right? Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. That particular meat cannot be made unclean by man-made laws or traditions. Now, again, Tim Haig is working from the phrase unclean as a cathartos, the stronger definition. So what Tim means is that if God gives it the thumbs up green light, right, checklist, it's okay to eat, then man can't come along and says, no, it's unclean using the same strict standards um, that God would have used. In other words, Tim Haig was trying to say that man does not have the same authority as God. God says it's clean. Man can't come along and reverse God's written decree. And the reverse can't take place. God says it's unclean. Man has no authority to come along and say that it is clean. So, in, in, in a scenario in Paul's day, we would have God saying, um, beef is clean, you can eat it. However, uh, God would say pork is unclean. This means man cannot come along and say that beef is unclean and pork is clean using those same adjectives and the same original root Hebrew words or the Greek counterparts. Understand my uh, example here? By the same token, in Paul's day, God would not come along and say, beef is clean and pork is unclean, and then a man come along and say, beef is unclean. I guess I suppose I already said it that way, but you guys are understanding what I'm saying. Uh, pork is unclean. Beef is clean. Man can't come along and swap out those designations arbitrarily without God's permission. And since God didn't give us any permission to change those designations, we don't have any other, we don't have any other passages where the, where the Bible indicates that God's going to um, uh, reverse his decree when it comes to what animals are clean and unclean. Um, well, then I guess we don't have a right to change those designations. We do have the right to come along and add an extra definition on our own, as long as that extra definition doesn't change God's definition. So we can say that things are unholy. We can say that things are unsanctioned. We can say that things are common or profane by man's standards. Generically, we can just simply say something's dirty, right? A perfectly permissible cut of beef that falls on the ground, on the dirt, outside is suddenly designated by a man as dirty, right? It's it's unsanctioned, it's unholy, it's common, it's dirty. I wouldn't want to eat it, right, without washing it first. So that's the example that um, I'm kind of working with, and that's, I think, what, what Tim Haig's trying to convey there. So uh, Tim Haig adds, thus, Paul's meaning for verse 14, right, Romans 14, 14 is the verse we're focusing on. Paul's meaning is, quote, nothing God has declared to be clean is unclean in itself. Nothing is um, really common of itself. Nothing is really um, needs to be avoided from a religious perspective in and of itself. This uh, application 
I understand Paul to be saying to his first century readers a little bit more strongly for them than it would be today because they lived in a, in a day and age where there was a temple and ritual impurity uh, was still an issue that they had to contend with. But for Paul, the religious Jews who would have um, constituted the weak in faith in Paul's letter, uh, whether they be Messianic Jews or non-Messianic Jews, it really doesn't matter in this scenario, they were considered to be the weaker ones, the weaker brothers that Paul was trying to address and try, trying to reach out to. They would have looked at food offered in idolatrous ceremonies or sold in common meat markets as off-limits. They would have de- deemed it as koinos, common, unsanctioned, secular, unclean. And um, Paul's meaning of nothing God has declared to be clean as unclean and of itself, uh, again, is factored in when we consider that the religious Jews would not have been seeking to change God's definition of food from unclean to clean. Instead, they would have been aware of the fact that they're simply stepping in line with adding an extra fence around the biblical injunction to to keep kosher. They would have been adding an extra halakhic step of um, steering clear of idolatry and uh, trying to steer clear of that which uh, would have maybe... um, rendered ritual impurity or something like that. They, there was there was a you know some some heavy debates that took place in the first century over how ritual impurity is um, contracted. You know how is it passed from person to person or from object to object? You know because the Torah talks about you know, touching unclean objects or objects that were are, are uh, ritually impure and transmitting that ritual impurity from object A to object B or from person A to person B. You know like almost like uh, becoming infected like with a virus. It was almost viral. And that, and that concept, although it was within the 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 the, the uh, language of ritual, okay, so it wasn't like physical. It was it was ritual, it was cultic, and so uh, it made more it made more um, sense to religious Jews in Paul's day. Today, again, I understand we don't have ritual impurity really so much to deal with because we don't have a temple, we don't have the context to understand ritual uh, clean and unclean. But that doesn't change the rules that God set up in Leviticus 11 to abstain from that which God says don't eat and to avoid those animals from eating because God simply says they were designated as off limits to eat. We can make that application by today's standards. God simply says don't eat it Therefore, by today's standards, we can still avoid those particular animals on the table, on the food, on the, uh, the, the, the dinner table. We don't have to bring in the ritual aspect uh, like it existed uh, when there was a temple, but we can still follow the biblical injunction. We can still keep kosher by biblical standards because those animals are still deemed uh, not edible from God's perspective. You understand what I mean by that? Okay, so we don't have to guess. Um, Tim Haig continues, Paul does not want those strong in faith, which again, we've all already ascertained that this primarily would have been the Gentile uh, Christian membership in the congregations that he's writing to. He doesn't want those strong in faith to coerce those weak in faith through pressure of rejection, right? We've got all kinds of social pressures where we get people to try and conform to any given set of standards or rules. You know, if you want to join our group and be a member of our group, you got to look like us and dress like us and eat like us. Well, 
in Paul's day, there would have been strong lines of demarcation between religious Jews who were raised with keeping Torah versus many of the newly emerging Gentile Christian communities that were flocking up around the Yeshua and coming into this uh, otherwise Jewish movement. Understand the friction and tension that would have been raised by having a flood of people join your community and congregation or synagogue who were not really trained to have uh, cultural sensitivities that were um, appreciative of the law of Moses. Right? So for religious Jews, it was just their natural lifestyle. It was the way they were raised. Obviously, they would have been avoiding um, certain animals for consumption, and it was only an easy, one extra easy step to avoid food sold in the marketplace and things like that. Well, the religious Jews are going to clash with the Gentile Christians coming in over these types of table fellowship issues and, and cultural sensitivities and things like that. And that's where Paul's going to have to step in and do damage control and play referee and try to say, hey, look, um, here's how you guys need to get along with one another and things like that. So uh, uh, let's keep reading. Rather, uh, Tim Haig adds, uh, Paul wants each person to be fully convinced in his own conscience as an exercise of genuine faith. So um, Jews and Gentiles are both acceptable in God's sight, uh, even at the larger me- um, non-Messianic level. Paul, I believe, understood that greater Israel, the one who rejected, well, the ones who had not yet accepted Jesus, um, not necessarily those who were uh, in a black, backslidden state where they're openly rejecting Messiah, but those part those uh, members of Israel who had not come to the place where they believe in Jesus personally as their own personal Messiah, they haven't made that choice yet. They still are, they're still in a place where um, they can be uh, reconciled with the Messiah and brought into a proper relationship. Paul wants them to be fully convinced in their own conscience as an exercise of the genuine faith that they're expressing in God and their genuine loyalty to God's uh, Torah. Even though Paul understands that they can't properly fulfill the righteous requirements of Torah until they come into faith in Messiah, nevertheless, they're on a track towards uh, faith in Messiah. They're on the um, train, as it were, of faith because they are um, believing in God. They're expressing a faith in God, and they're expressing a loyalty to Torah. And therefore, they're doing the very thing that God designed them to do to lead them into the um, uh, faith of their, of God's Son, uh, Messiah Yeshua. So they have this measure of genuine faith, even if it's kind of a generic faith in God and not yet a, um, an expressed faith in Messiah. But all the more so, the Messianic Jews who have expressed faith in Jesus, along with the Gentile counterparts who also express faith in Israel's Messiah. These brothers, right, both the inner brothers and the outer brothers, the the, the, the 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 ones close to heart and the ones who are a bit strange, Paul wants everyone to be fully convinced about the choices that he's making. And so um, coercion is not going to get anyone anywhere. It's just going to lead to the judgmental attitudes that Paul's warning them strongly to avoid um, uh, exercising. Let's finish up what Tim Hague has to say in this particular part, and we'll finish this out tonight. Thus, uh, Tim Hague says, if one cannot eat a particular food because they lack assurance that God permits it, right? Religious Jews in Paul's day or um, those seeking to keep a messianic Torah-based lifestyle by today's standards, uh, then it's better for them to abstain, to consider it unclean for himself. Again, um, 
Tim Haig's aware of the phrase unclean there means common. He's not trying to change God's designation of the word unclean there. And thus again, the practical application for today's 21st century church communities that we need to remember is that if you have Messianic brothers in your church, Jews and Gentiles who are seeking return to a lifestyle that, that's closely resembling what the law of Moses has already laid down, and they're trying to keep kosher according to the Bible, and you, a Gentile Christian, don't have the same sensitivities towards food that they do, the minute you learn of their sensitivities, then what Paul would want you to do would be to play the part of the strong and to actually bear with the I'm using the word weaknesses in parenthesis in uh, air quotes, bear with the weaknesses of that that brother that so designated um, in their particular kosher um, preferences when it comes to um, food that they eat and food that they avoid. And that's the biblical way to maintain fellowship with that messianic brother or sister. Of course, I don't think that um, keeping Torah is a sign of weakness. I don't think that makes you a weak person. Again, I believe that the weak in faith, and we went through this several months back and tried to establish what Mark Nanos explains, the weak in Paul's letter, the weak in faith, are those Jews who had not yet uh, made their verbal confession that Jesus is Lord of their life. They were still in deliberation mode, in decision mode. They were still considering the prospect of who Jesus was to the um, uh, people of Israel. I think that's what he means by weak. But nevertheless, even if your particular interpretation of Romans 14 uh, labels the weak as someone who keeps Torah, it doesn't change the, the, the fact that Paul expects you as the strong to defer to that weak person and to not to wound their conscience by telling them, hey, come on. You know, you can have a ham sandwich. Don't be so rigid. Don't be so. Don't be so Pharisaic, right? Don't don't be so legalistic. That's the wrong stance to take. If I'm understanding Paul correctly, he wants you, that strong Christian, to take a position where you are um, deferring to the weak brother, especially in table fellowship and your own eggs and your your um, uh, get-togethers with with each other over the dinner plate, and uh, to consider that this person is doing what he's doing out of their service to God, this messianic brother. And if I'm just going to tell hey, have a ham sandwich, don't worry about it. Well, that's going to wound their conscience. It's going to confuse them. It's going to ostracize them. It's going to um, put them in a place where they don't want to fellowship with you Gentile Christians anymore. Lastly, Tim Haig has one last bullet point where he adds, what he is not allowed to do, speaking of the strong brother in the group, what he's not allowed to do is to make his own opinion or preference the rule for others. So the stronger brothers in the group, whether we're talking about in Paul's day, or we're bringing this practical application over into today's uh, Christian uh, conversations, the strong in the group, those who think that it's okay to eat whatever they want, um, they're not allowed to make their own opinions the preference, the rule for everyone else. In other words, it's my way or the highway. Um, you guys who have your food sensitivities, get over it. Deal with it, right? Um, the Bible says we can eat anything. Don't worry about it. That's the wrong attitude to take in these particular situations. It's better to just consider that some people have food sensitivities not based on religious standards, but some people have food sensitivities based on um, health standards, right? Some people are diabetic. Some people are allergic to certain foods. Some people prefer uh, to avoid certain foods based on uh, vegetarian choices or things like that. There are a whole host of reasons 
why any given Christian or Messianic Jew might seek to avoid a certain food item at the table. It is absolutely wrong for you, who has no such sensitivity, to try and mow over that other person's opinion and say, my opinion is what matters most, and it's the rule for the church. Let's just say it's, it's the pastor who, who, who can just eat anything. He has no allergy, allergies. He has no vegetarian preferences. He has no kosher preferences. Uh, you know, he has no um, diuretic doctor, um, uh, uh, diabetic doctor uh, orders uh, the food. You know that he's supposed to avoid or anything like that. Let's suppose that he sh- he's he's in a position where he can just eat anything. Right? He got a got a cast iron stomach. Is it right for him to tell everyone else in the group, "Hey, look, because I can eat anything and I'm the pastor. Well, then my way is the rule." I think that the uh, answer to that question is no. That's the wrong opinion. So that's going to do it for a look at um, of uh, what Tim Haig says. And so I say in my own commentary in closing. And so, in conclusion, after disambiguating the technicalities behind the Greek terms clean and unclean, right? We looked at koinos and akathertos from Romans 14, and we tied that into um, Acts 10:14. What Peter said: "No, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean." And we talked about how um, there are two different Greek words that would have been in use from a first-century Jewish perspective. Then what we're going to find is that we we will pleasantly discover that the remaining verses of this section that we're looking at are self-explanatory. So let me just read the verses, and you can see for yourself. Verse 15, Paul says, For if your brothers grieve by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Again, within the context, it's now easy to understand um, that Paul wants the strong to practice deference and to practice serving the younger and to serve the, the younger in the Lord. is what we mean perhaps by weak in faith or at least serve the um, the person who has a different um, food preference uh, than you if you feel that, hey, you can eat anything. Um, don't let your food preferences tear down your brother. Don't let it grieve your brother. You certainly have no right to judge your brother because he's serving God with his particular lifestyle choice as well. That's not walking in love, Paul says, don't let what you eat become a weapon uh, for the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16, Paul says, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Gentiles worshiping and fellowshipping with Jews in the synagogues of the first century would have been a good thing. Gentiles joining Jewish communities without having to go through the proselyte ceremony is definitely a good thing. Gentiles being joined to the commonwealth of Israel and being counted as genuine covenant members without having to go through all those um, proselyte versions and changing their ethnicity and, and doing all those other unnecessary steps was definitely a good thing. Being counted by God as righteous without having to change your ethnicity was absolutely a good thing by Paul's day. And thus, being able to understand that food sold in the marketplaces was no longer really off limits as long as it was permissible from God's perspective, the idols really didn't do damage to the food that God said was permissible. That was a good thing as a as a Gentile, um, as a former pagan coming into Christianity of the first century. It was good to be able to say, wow, I don't have to worry about um, idols, idol idolatry in that sense. I need to steer clear of idol worship, yes, but I don't have to worry about food that was 
perhaps tainted by idolatrous um, uh, ceremonies, I can eat whatever sold in the marketplace, Paul's going to tell us in Corinthians, without, ha- without matters of conscience on my own. But at the same time, I need to consider the conscience of those around me within my um, religious communities. So that's what he means by what's good, don't let it be spoken of as evil. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, right? Food is important. Table fellowship is certainly important, but it's not the end-all, be-all, do-all for what God considers uh, important in his eyes. Um, The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And I think that speaks directly to the way that we serve one another and defer to one another and build the other brother up in love and in the Lord, not seeking to tear him down over something as trivial as their food choices and making them feel uh, silly and stupid and um, uh, isolated just because they have a different choice in food than we do. That's certainly not righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, if you ask me. And I think Paul would agree. And then the final verse in the set that we looked at is, Paul says, whoever thus serves Christ, keeping within the table fellowship context, whoever thus serves Christ, right? We're serving Messiah as we serve our fellow brothers, our weakened brothers, or those who have differences in food preferences. We're actually serving Messiah, Paul interprets. Um, And if we're serving our fellow brother, then we're serving Messiah. And in thus doing, we are acceptable to God and approved by men as well. And that's going to do it for this particular section uh, in my uh, commentary. Next week, we're set to turn to verse 19, where Paul, where I asked the question, how can we make for peace and mutual upbuilding when it comes to this, uh, these communities of ours? And we'll look at that and continue to ask the questions about, um, it's still within the context of food. We're not going to leave that context, but we're going to continue going down this road of more practical application from the first century into the 21st century. We've got Jews and Gentiles who have differences of opinion today, and we've got Christians, uh, both Messianic and non-Messianic, who have our differences of opinion when it comes to these particular matters. How can we strengthen one another and make for peace and mutual upbuilding instead of tearing each other down, okay? That'll do it for exploring the Shema, I'm sorry, for um, Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food, oh my. Let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. And we're finally in paper three of three. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Let's start talking about this finally after it's been easily more than a year since we started this study and I'm just taking my time and I've been writing and putting this particular part of my commentary together. If you recall, Paper one of three dealt with the foundational truth of who God is as our one and only God. God is one, like we read in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Better interpreting that Hebrew phrase, Echad, in Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, better interpreting that phrase one as the Lord alone, the Lord exclusively. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is the only God, that there is. Now, of course, religious Judaism has taken this verse in Deuteronomy 6.4 and turned it into an argument of this is a statement about God's makeup, of his nature. It turns it into an ontological statement. The Lord is one. He's not three, like the Christians say. Well, that's where we're having these discussions on the issues of Trinity to try and ascertain who or what 
is God. That was in part one of three, in paper one of three. In paper two of three, we turn to a specific look at Yeshua and his father, Yahweh and Yeshua, is what the paper two of three is, is labeled. Um, how do we better understand this single God in terms of the hypostatic union of God and man that we find in the man Yeshua? Yeshua is true God, and yet he's true man, right? Sometimes we say fully God and fully man, or 100% God and 100% man, however you want to phrase it. We're trying to explain the incarnation, how God can become man. And that was where we spent a lot of time going through this particular study. That was paper two of three. We're finally ready to start bringing in a third person of the Trinity, right? In case you couldn't catch the structure of my paper. Paper one dealt with the God the Father. Paper two dealt with the Son. Now paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit? So let's begin to look at some of the contents of where I'm going to be going with this comment, with this particular part, this paper three. Here's some of the um, labels or um, titles or paragraph headings that I'm going to be um, looking at. And, we'll, and we're not going to even uh, make it through this. I'm just going to show you this over, the overview so you can kind of whet your appetite towards where we're going to be going over the next uh, several weeks and months. I hope it doesn't take a year to go through this particular part of my commentary, but um, we're going to take our time so that we understand it. I have one section called Introduction, My Bluff, the bottom line up front, the B-L-U-F, the bluff, the bottom line up front. I'm going to tell you right up front how I believe we should interpret this Spirit of God and who or what He is. I'm going to tell you that right up front and just tip my cards to you, to you the reader or the listener or the, my YouTube viewer. So that'll be the first section. The se second section is entitled, uh, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Eastern Orthodoxy, the Latter-day Saints, and Social Trinitarian Thoughts. We're going to get a little bit technical there and do a bit of a digression on the overview of this concept of Trinity as seen through the lens of East versus West, right? Roman Catholic Roman Catholic versus Eastern Orthodoxy, and then we'll talk about um, a popular um, quasi-Christian group known as the Latter-day Saints, aka the Mormons. Uh, we'll see what their perspectives on the Holy Spirit are, and then we'll pull this through the lens of the of the model of Trinity known as Social Trinitarianism, um, and find how how this is relevant in viewing the Holy Spirit and things like that. Those will be my thoughts in that section. The um, next section in the list will be who or what is the Holy Spirit rabbinic Jewish thoughts uh, as seen through or as taken from the Jewish encyclopedia. And so we'll just examine how do religious Jews of days gone by and perhaps today, how do they interpret who or what the Holy Spirit is? What's their perspective? The next section we'll look at is who or what is the Holy Spirit? Unitarian thoughts, biblical Unitarian. You guys are already familiar with our um, uh, exam, our model biblical Unitarian, Dr. Dale Tuggy. Um, we're going to continue looking at what the biblical Unitarian perspective on the Holy Spirit is. How do we as biblical um, Orthodox Trinitarians, how does our perspective on who or what the Holy Spirit is differ and or contrast with biblical Unitarian perspectives on who or what the Holy Spirit is? The next section in this uh, paper three will be um, looking at who or what is the Holy Spirit, classical Christian thoughts, um, and we'll look at the HTS theological studies. Um, classical Christian thoughts is going to capture more of what mainstream Christianity of today thinks about who or what the Holy Spirit is, and this is going to provide the contrast to um, what we just looked at 
on the, um, the, the, the biblical Unitarian perspectives. The next section is going to be labeled, Who or What is the Holy Spirit? Revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from part two. If you'll remember in part two, when we got near the end of that paper, we dealt with this table that CARM provided where we looked at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and we um, examined terms and labels and attributes related to each person of the um, economic trinity and we examined their roles and in that table there was a list for Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to look at that table one more time and focus just on the Holy Spirit ones in this particular paper and it'll, it'll provide a bit of a review but it'll also help us to bring our perspectives on the Holy Spirit back into line with what the Bible teaches. Remember, at the end of the day, no matter what you hear from your pastor or your average um, uh, internet article or Bible commentary or what you read from your philosopher, whoever's telling you uh, who or what the Holy Spirit is, at the end of the day, what God says in his word is going to be the most authoritative. Amen? Amen. And then the last section will be um, more or less a functional excursus, kind of like a digression again, but it'll be the topic Ruach within versus Ruach upon. We're going to talk about the topic of, was the Holy Spirit in the people of the Old Testament, or was he only on the people in the Old Testament, like it's commonly taught in church circles? He only came upon Christians or believers or people in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, he actually dwells within you. And people, we see this somewhat dichotomy or, or difference, sharp difference between the two um, uh, roles of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. But we're going to talk about that and examine that perspective. All right, having said all that, Let's turn right into the introduction and take a little bit of time uh, to look at this. We've got about 10 or 15 minutes left in this section of my study before we turn to um, the uh, liturgy and then the video. Introduction, my bluff, what is called the bottom line up front. All right, so let's just jump right into this. Here's what I have to say. The term pneumatology is, quote, the branch of Christian theology concerned with the Holy Spirit, the study of spirits, or spiritual beings. And uh, that dictionary definition, if I click on the link, is taken from the um, Google Online Dictionary that you can find on any given browser or website, or sometimes you have the app installed on your computer. So, Google Dictionary definition. So, that's uh, pneumatology. I continue. Since we're talking about discussing the ontology of the God of the Bible, and when I say ontology, I also provide a dictionary definition. According to um, the same uh, Google Online Dictionary, I say ontology, if you recall, is the branch of metaphysics dealing with the nature of being, right? A set of concepts and categories in a subject area or domain that shows their properties and the relations between them. So that's my technical term there, ontology, this particular discussion on how something is made up. What is it made up of? What are, what are the components of its, you know, of its uh, makeup? How is it put together? How is it function? So we're talking about how is God put together, so to say. All right, so that's what I mean by ontology. So since we're going to be dis- uh, discussing the, um, the ontology of the God of the Bible, well then, I imagine that pneumatology is going to necessarily have a bit of overlap with theology, which of course is the study of the nature of God, as well as with Christology, 
which is, of course, the study of the nature of Christ. So we have all of these three ologies that are working together. Well, four, really. We have ontology, then we have pneumatology, theology, and Christology, right? The study of, study of, the study of, the ology of. So that's what we're looking at. I continue my commentary. So I want to begin this third installment of my Trinity study, firstly, by sharing what I'm calling my bluff, my bottom line up front. That's what I want you guys to understand um, where I'm going. I want you to know right away what I uh, hold to, what position I believe. And so we can kind of see if what I'm saying is uh, accurate with the Bible. I want you to understand my position so that you don't misunderstand what I say later on because obviously my uh, uh, commentaries can be misunderstood for, because of all the technicalities that show up in them. I continue. Uh, so I wanted you to know what I'm calling my bottom line up front before briefly turning to a digression on social Trinitarianism and its relevance to both Eastern Orthodox views on the Holy Spirit, right? I talked about um, East versus West and um, the perspective of Roman Catholicism and its offshoot Protestantism versus Eastern Orthodox views on the Trinity, which would include Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that a little bit as well. But we're also going to examine the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints heretical views on the Trinity and the Holy Spirit. And the reason we're going to look at that, I'll just tell you somewhat right up front, is because of their closely worded language that shows up in their doctrinal statements. It's almost designed to bring unsuspecting Christians over into their, um, into their religious affiliations without feeling like they're leap, making a big leap from one form of Christianity to a different form of Christianity. It's almost like they're saying, hey, look at what we believe. We're not too different from your average Christian church that you're probably used to going to. Why not attend our church? Look at our statement of beliefs. And so we're going to look at that to see how that, even though it looks like they're saying something similar to what you might believe as a, as a, as a standard Protestant evangelical Christian, in the end, if we look at more closely at their language, um, their form of Trinity and their view on the Holy Spirit is actually quite dangerous. And so we, we really want to avoid that. I continue in my own uh, commentary here. I say, as I have maintained throughout this commentary as a whole, it is vital that we Orthodox, with a small o, biblical Trinitarian believers hold to a balanced view of what the scriptures teach concerning the nature of the one true God that we serve, right? Um, that's only common sense. That's going to be um, something that you're going to find no matter which author you're looking at, um, me included. In the end, I say, as I mentioned at the onset of this commentary, let me pull a quote, quote, heresy is simply an aspect of truth taken to an extreme and pushed out of proportion with the whole body of truth. That's a quote from Kevin J. Connor. If I were to click on that uh, footnote number 25 there, which I don't need to. The point being, when we're um, comparing what we believe as Orthodox uh biblical trinitarians when we compare that to other views such as we're going to be looking at like um, many different views but i'm trying to kind of try to concentrate them to just maybe a few here in this um section uh for instance like the uh the, the mormon view that we're going to look at uh, later on we need to understand where heresy comes from heresy launches from truth truth precedes heresy truth comes first 
right? What God lays down in his scripture is first and foremost foundational. Heresy takes a part of that truth and perverts it and twists it, leaves part out, brings in the admixture of error, and then tries to package it as truth. And we need to be aware of the devil's schemes when it comes to trying to deceive us with his heretical perspectives. Let's continue. When discussing the topic of the Ruach HaKodesh, right, the Holy Spirit, let me click on this link number 25 and um, just show you something, by the way. I've mentioned this in the past. Uh, footnote number 25, uh, I'm sorry, footnote number 26 says, by the way, and I've read this before, did you know that the Hebrew word for spirit is Ruach, which can also be translated variously as breath? or wind. I bet you didn't know that. Some of you knew that, but some of you who are not familiar with Hebrew didn't know that. So when Messianic Jews, such as myself, refer to the Holy Spirit, right, and the way it sounds in English when we say Holy Spirit, quite often we use the Hebrew term Ruach HaKodesh. That phrase, Ruach HaKodesh, is simply the Hebrew version of Holy Spirit. And I go on to say in my commentary, since the Hebrew word Kodesh is actually a noun, a verse like Psalm 51.11, where the phrase Ruach Kodesh is actually found, it actually literally conveys the sense of the spirit of holiness, right? The spirit of holiness. But Holy Spirit, with in the English, the holy functioning as an adjective, I think it works fi just fine as well, per se. So that's um, uh, kind of just some, some nuggets that might uh, interest you, some Hebrew nuggets. You hear the phrase, Ruach HaKodesh, thought I'd uh, mention that for you. All right, so we're having this discussion about the Holy, uh, about the Ruach HaKodesh, a.k.a. the Holy Spirit. And the question in these particular discussions that's naturally raised as to whether or not we're simply dealing with as I say in my commentary, an impersonal force of God, such as one of God's attributes, is that what we're dealing with? All right, these are questions that we're going to be uh, discussing. Or if instead we're dealing with the third person of the Trinity, is that really what we're talking about? Keep in mind, there are different models of Trinity. There are different aspects of the way we interpret what the Bible is teaching us. There's different ways to dialogue with the text. And um, I'm not saying that there's only one definitive way. Sometimes, as we're going to find out, given the context, there's one way to interact with what we're reading. And then as we read, continue reading, there's maybe a deeper understanding to interact with the uh, content that we're reading in the Bible that agrees and is in harmony with the first reading. It doesn't disrupt it or or challenge it. So uh, let's keep reading my commentary and you'll kind of see this uh, work its way out. We'll get to, we'll read down to the end of this uh, paragraph and then we'll draw this part of my uh, commentary to close and turn to our liturgy. I go on to say, or perhaps depending on context, like I just referenced, are we simply talking about God's very own personal spirit when we say Holy Spirit? You know, you hear people talk about the Holy Spirit, um, or they read a passage in the Bible and that mentions the Holy Spirit. What's the context, right? What are we talking about? I go on to say, to be sure, perhaps more than one application from this short list of options that I'm listing here may in fact apply from any given context in question, right? That's only common sense, that context is king. 
context is going to drive your interpretation. And so you need to be aware that in some parts of your Bible, you're going to have a certain amount of limited information that's presented to you that may not find a fuller or um, um, a fulfilled expression until you read a different part of your Bible. I go on to say, research is obviously important when seeking to uncover truth, right? That's just the given. And, of course, I say, as important as scientific findings that include theological and specialist opinions in these fields of study are, right? Um, we, we always want to hear what theologians say. We always want to know what specialists in their respective fields have to say on the particular matter, right? Language specialists and things like that. As important as those opinions are, I'm going to say, as noble Bereans, we need to allow the authoritative word of God to supply the final answers when addressing topics such as these. And that's going to go without saying as well. At the end of the day, as I draw this part of uh, my commentary to a close and the study, um, it's great to hear what Rabbi so-and-so has to say. It's great to hear what Professor so-and-so, Dr. so-and-so, Pastor so-and-so, etc., etc. It's great to bring in those perspectives, believing that those people can and will be led by the same Spirit of God that you are led by as you're reading your very own Bible. You want to give those people's voice a certain amount of weight and evidence and discussion on the table of examination. But at the end of the day, what God's Word says is going to be the final say. It's going to be the final authority, not to the exclusion of what the other people are supplying for the conversation, but God's Word as your um, spirit um, uh, agrees with what God's Spirit is interpreting, uh, saying to you, uh, the Bible is going to be your final authority. And so you can have confirmation that your rabbi, your pastor, or your reverend, or your father, or your pastor, or your priest, whomever, your professor, your doctor, you can have confirmation in your spirit that what they're saying is accurate. And that's a good thing, right? You want to trust what they're saying as well, particularly if they're really Christian. But at the end of the day, it's what the Bible says and what the Spirit of God is telling you what the Word of God says. That's going to be the final authority on those matters, okay? We'll continue to work our way through this or work your way down through this commentary. Uh, and that'll, that'll do it uh, tonight for um, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy. We looked at these two passages over the last few weeks. Today we're going to read these verses in their entirety. We read the English three weeks ago. We read the Hebrew and Greek as they're normally found in your Bibles two weeks ago. We read the Greek and the Hebrew as you might find them in specialized Bibles last week. And then this week we're going to read all of them together. So sit, uh, get strapped in and get uh, stay in your seat until the ride comes to a complete stop because we're going to read through a lot uh, tonight. We're going to read Genesis 1, 1 through 5 in the English. Then I'm going to read it in the Hebrew. Then I'm going to read it in the Greek. And then I'm going to turn to John 1, 1 through 5 and read it in the English. And then I'm going to read it in the original Greek. And then I'm going to read it in the supplied Hebrew. Understanding that the, the Greek of Genesis is an added translation from 2,000 years ago. And the Hebrew of, of the New Testament is an added translation supplied from probably maybe 100 or 200 years ago or something like that. Okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Looking at my page here, let's start on the left side of the page and just read through all of the English of Genesis 1-1 for us. Um, let's see. Do I want to blow that up? Let me take a look. Yeah, I think I'll um, 
make that how big do I want that? That's too big. Let's go with that. I think we'll try that. All right. Genesis 1.1, English Standard Version, reads, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's go back up and read the Hebrew. Over on the right side of the page, starting right there. The Hebrew says, Breshit barra Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. Verse 2, V'ha'aretz ha'ita'atohu v'avohu v'choshek al panei ta'hom v'ruach Elohim b'lchefet al panei ha'mayim. Notice in the Hebrew, we have this word ruach, which is, we, as we talked about earlier, is the Hebrew word for spirit, but it's also the same Hebrew word for breath or wind. The wind of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The breath of God hovered over the f- surface of the waters. One of these days we'll do a little bit more digging into the Hebrew, and I'll show you some clever nuggets there. Verse 3 says in the Hebrew, Vayomer Elohim yahi or vayahi or. Verse 4, Vayara Elohim et haor. Kitov, Vayavdeel Elohim, Bein Haor, Vein Hachoshek. And if you listen to the Hebrew, uh, Or and Choshek, Or is light and Choshek is darkness, you're going to hear that when you listen to John's rendering, where John talks about light and darkness in John 1 1 in the first verses. You're going to hear those same Hebrew terms, Or for light and Choshek for darkness. So listen up for them when I get to that part of my liturgy. Verse 5 in the Hebrew says, Vayikra Elohim lo or yom ul la choshek, I'm sorry, vela choshek kara lailak. Again, we have or and choshek, light and darkness. And then the final clause says, Vayihi ere vayihi voker yom echad. The evening and the morning were day one, literally. It says first day in your translation over there in English, but I, don't, I, I disagree with that uh, translation. It really should say uh, day one, not first day. All right, let's turn now to a um, reading of the Greek of Genesis 1.1, and this is from my uh, tool found at greekdoc.com which you can find online. And I highly uh, recommend that you turn to this version so you can look at the Septuagint Greek. We've got English and Hebrew up there, which I'm not going to read because I already read it. Let's just turn to the Greek. The Greek, English, uh, the Greek right there of uh, Genesis 1-1 says, In arche apoyas in hotheos ton uran ketain gain. Verse 2, right there, says, Hey de gain Aerotas kai akataskuestas kai skatas epano tes abusu kai pnuma theu epiferoto epano tu hudatas. Verse 3 says kai apenho theos genetheto fos kai egeneto fos. The word for light in the Greek is phos. That's where we get our English word, uh, I believe, um, 
of phosphorus or uh, phosphorescent or um, something like that. The Greek word phos is, is related to that same English word um, phosphorus or phosphorescent, I believe. Look it up for me and tell me what you think in your comments. Verse 4 in the Greek of uh, Genesis 1, verse 4. It says, Kai eden hotheos tophos hati kalon, kai diakorosin hotheos ana meson to photos, kai ana meson to skatus. And then verse 5 says, Kai e hotheos tophos himeron kai to skatos. Ekalasin nukta, kai egenato espera, kai egenato proi himera mia, and that'll do it for the reading from Genesis, both in the uh, in the English, the original Hebrew, and the Greek Septuagint. Let's turn now to John one one through five. Read the English, the original Greek, and then the Hebrew translation as part of our liturgy tonight. English Standard Version. Uh, left side of the page, right there, reads, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God, speaking of this eternal Word. Verse 3, All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Of course, we know from this verse that John is linking the creatorship of God in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, with Jesus, the eternal word, being the creator. All things were made through him. Jesus, the eternal word, is the agency of creation. And we're going to see from the um, Hebrew, from the Greek rendering, that we read here in a second, that the Greek of John 1.1 closely matches the Septuagint Greek of Genesis 1.1. I'll point that out for you this time. John 1.4, in English, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 5, when we get to the Greek, notice those those Hebrew words that we're going to look at in a moment. Phos uh, rendered light, and um, 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 or and Hoshek out of the Hebrew that we're going to see here when we read the uh, Hebrew of John 1.5. The light shines in the darkness, he says in English, and the darkness has not overcome it. So we're going to see those words, um, light and darkness, show up again. Let me jump back up and read the Greek for you of this same passage on the right side of the page right there. This is the normal rendering, um, the authoritative Greek that we're used to. Uh, this isn't the translation Johnny come lately that came back, came around 100 or so years ago. This is the authoritative Greek that we use from our Bibles. The Greek says, In arche ein halagas, kai halagas, ein prostantheon, kai theos, ein halagas. And in the Greek, en arche, right, en arche, in the beginning, closely resembles, if I go back up to the Septuagint rendering from the um, uh, Hebrew that we looked at earlier of verse one, notice the very first two words from the Septuagint are en arche, in the beginning, en arche. That's rooted in the same uh, wording that John used, en arche. So John, who is writing in likely in Greek, because that's what we have preserved for us, was likely familiar with the Septuagint Greek that we just read earlier. Isn't that really fascinating? All right, let's keep reading. Uh, John 1, 2 in the Greek says, Hutas en 
I'm sorry, hutas ein in arke pros tom theon. Verse 3, panta di autu egenato kai koros autu egenato ude hein ha geglanin. Verse 4, in auto zoe ein kai he zoe ein ta fos, I'm sorry, fos, ton anthropon. Again, that word for light is phos, like we looked at, like is related to our English word, I believe, um, phosphorus or, or phosphorescent or something like that, something that relates to light. And then uh, verse 5 says in the Greek, kai ta phos, right, the light, en te skatia phane, kai he skatia auta u katelabin. And that'll do it for the rendering from the Greek. Let's turn now to the Hebrew rendering of John 1.1. 1, 1. And remember, when we get to verse 5, listen for the words or, which is light, and choshek, which is darkness, which were found in the Hebrew of Genesis 1, when God talks about creating light and darkness. And we're going to hear John use those same Hebrew words from this particular uh, translation into Hebrew. John 1.1 1, 1 in the Hebrew starting on the left side of the page right there. The Hebrew says, Bereshit haya hadavar, vahadavar haya et halohim, vuhu hadavar haya elohim. Verse 2, Hu haya merush et ha elohim. Verse 3, Kol hamaasim nihu al yado, vein davar ashir naasa mi bal adaiv. Verse 4, in him was life, bo nimza chayim. The word for life is chayim, this word right there. Um, you've probably heard lachayim, to life, right? This is the Hebrew word for life. In Yeshua, in this word, the eternal word, in this word was life, bo nimza chayim. And life, v'chayim, and the life was the light of men. Chaim ur ha'adam. The word for light is ur, just like we saw in the uh, Hebrew rendering of Genesis 1-1, when God created light and darkness. And now in verse 5, as rendered in Hebrew, we see these same Hebrew words. The English says, light shines in the darkness. The Hebrew says, v'ha'ur zoreach ba'choshek. So we have Or and Choshek, same Hebrew words that were used over in Genesis. Vahaor Zorech Ba Choshek. And the darkness, Vahachoshek Lo Yehilenu. It did not apprehend this darkness. It didn't even comprehend it or apprehend it or something like that. And that'll do it for our liturgy tonight, which encompassed the English the original Hebrew, the original Greek, and the translations of the Greek and the translation of the Hebrew. That'll do it for our liturgy. Let's turn now to the um, short video for tonight. It's a five-minute video on, on the uh, Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters like we read about in Genesis 1-2. And we'll watch the video, and after the video's done, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go.
Short Questions, Short Answers by Tor Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright Tate Tor Ministries, 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question. What does the Bible mean when it says the Spirit brooded? What does that verse mean? All right, we're going to take a look at some Hebrew tonight. Let me read the English and then the Hebrew, and then I'll explain. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's look at the Hebrew on the screen as well. The Hebrew verse 1 says, Breshit bara Elohim, et hashemayim ve'et ha'aretz. Verse 2 says, Vaha'aretz ha'ita, tohu vavohu, v'choshek al panei tahom, v'ruach Elohim, m'rachevet al panei, or panei ha'mayim. What does it mean that this spirit, Ruach of God, Elohim, Merachefet, hovered all Panaim over the face of the waters? The original Hebrew word translated as brooded or hovered in Genesis 1 2 is Merachefet, and the root word is Rachaf, and it conveys a sense of shaking, moving, fluttering, as when a bird softly relaxes its flight to alight upon its young. This is a kind of a, a close proximity that's being described. And it adequately describes the actions of the Ruach, the Spirit, as he lovingly and closely watches over the created substance. How so? Well, this verb, although found three times in Scripture, is defined as, quote, hovering, end quote, only one other time in the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament. Here's the verse. He found his people in desert country, in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest, hovers, there's our word, over her young, spreads out her wings, takes him, and carries him as she flies. That's Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11. This beautiful illustration of the protective power of the Spirit in relation to his children, Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, as they travel through the wilderness, reminds me of the same Spirit that hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation, hovering, protecting, providing life to that which it is protecting. Understand what I'm trying to say there? It's this idea of a closely guarding and watching, but a carefully doing so. That's this word hovering. The word translated hovers in our above verse from Deuteronomy is the same root as the one that's used in Genesis 1-2, the chaf. That's the same word. Now, check this out. In fact, to strengthen the connection between the two applications of the spirit in Genesis and the spirit in Deuteronomy, the Haftar portion to Genesis, a Torah portion is Isaiah 42, 5 through 43, 10. And the Haftar portion is a prescribed reading portion from the prophets and the writings that was chosen by the ancient sages, the Jewish people, to complement the Torah portion, typically complementary in either its opening few phrases or the content. In this passage from the Haftor portion of Isaiah, we read in the opening 17 Hebrew words a summary of the first chapter in Genesis. The Hebrew reads first, 42 verse 5, Kol amar ha'il Adonai borei hashamayim v'notehem roka ha'aretz v'tzetz eya notein nishmar la'am alea v'ruach l'cholchim ba. Thus says God, Adonai, who created the heavens and spread them out, who stretched out the earth and all that grows from it, 
who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. All right. I hope this brief explanation adds some insight to the verse in question. This excerpt was lifted from my Messianic commentary to Genesis. You can see the video link in the upper right corner uh, for more information on watching that particular video teaching. Okay? All right. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Ab, I bless your name and thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet and to learn of you, to study of you, to soak up your precious Holy Spirit and to allow his uh, power to permeate uh, through my inner being to, to, to um, allow the words of the Master to, to make an impression on my mind and on my heart so that I can put them into practice, so that I can be um, a person, a man of faith, a person who walks by faith and not by sight. I want to be pleasing to you. I want to turn from sin. I want to continue to to press into the Spirit and do that which is pleasing to you, um, following after your words and after your ways and demonstrating uh, what it means to be a righteous person. Lord, I know I'm not perfect and I don't expect perfection. Neither do you. But what you do expect is for me to avail myself of your precious Holy Spirit and to... um, uh, continue to make my vessel usable as I uh, uh, turn away from that which is unholy, that which is profane, that which is unclean, and turn into that which is light, that which is truth, that which is love and holiness and healing and forgiveness. And that's the lifestyle I want to pursue. Thank you, Lord, that you modeled this lifestyle. You walked the road before me. You went on the difficult path of holiness and left an example for me to follow. And so I just need to to study and to avail myself of, of um, the example that you left for me. Um, avail myself of the very spirit that you provided for me to be able to uh, be pleasing to my Heavenly Father. Be with us tonight as we continue to go throughout our respective uh, places throughout the week. Guide us and lead us and give us opportunity to share our witness with others. Protect us from the pandemic and from from the schemes of evil men. Lord, continue to to heal us as a wounded nation, a divided nation. Um, uh, In so many ways, we've just got so many issues that we need your help with. Help us to turn to you and to continue to look to you um, uh, as our Father and as a source of our of our income, our provision, our safety, um, uh, everything, Lord, that we are belongs to you. And may we not forget that you are the source. And we'll be careful, Lord, to give the praise and the glory. Bashim Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. 
to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. 